So initially when I first started writing it, I basically had three big headings in Scrivener. It was like before, during, after. (laughs) And um, because I wanted to tell the story of my sister, my real sister's name's Alison. So I wanted to tell the story of her and me. But in order to tell the story of her and me, I just... I kept coming back to my parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how did and my question really was how did we get here? Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I'm actually recording in a different space today, as you will see if you are watching this on video. Rather than being in my vintage van, Virginia, I am back in my study, my office slash library, surrounded by all my beautiful books. And the reason for that is that, A, my husband has finally gone back to the office. So, my office space has freed up again. He actually had to use that because it was where there were the main computer terminals and things. Because I work on my laptop, I could work anywhere. And I also love to work in Virginia. But B, it's actually howling wind, freezing cold. It's the 1st of June. Winter has arrived with a bang. And rather than venture out and sit and freeze in Virginia, which hasn't currently got any heating, I thought I'd cosy up here in my office slash library to talk to today's guest. So on to who that is. My guest today is Dr. Jackie Bailey. Jackie has a new release, The Eulogy, published by Hardy Grant. It's her debut release and it's a category of book I hadn't actually heard of until I read the blurb for this one. And it's referred to as autofiction. Took me a little bit of thinking, but then when I started reading the book and reading the blurb and, and reading a few things about Jackie, I realised it's really just fiction based very very heavily on fact. So really autobiographical fiction, shortened to autofiction, which I'm going to be asking Jackie about. And I guess it's been around forever, but now it actually has a label. The book centres around the character Kathy Bradley and her family as they bury her sister, Annie. And Kathy works through the process of writing a eulogy for her very much-loved sibling. It's a story about grief, family and loss and so many other things which I'm going to be chatting to Jackie about. Jackie's resume itself, apart from her author work, is absolutely fascinating. In addition to being an author, she's an independent funeral director, an interfaith minister, and an arts consultant, and I'm sure that all those things have informed the writing of her debut novel, The Eulogy. So I can't wait to find out more about all of those things and to talk to Jackie about the book. So grab a cuppa, warm up, Keep warm because I'm sure that we are now in the midst of winter as you're listening to this and enjoy this chat with Dr. Jackie Bailey. So, Jackie, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks, Pam. It's nice to be here. 
Yeah, it's great to be here. And we were just chatting and we're actually not that far from each other geographically. You're probably about 15 minutes down the road from where I live. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, in the beautiful Illawarra. So really nice to have you on. Yeah, I reckon the wallabies probably do it in probably less time than that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Congratulations on the eulogy. It's out this week and yeah. uh, it's it's got that stunning cover, bright yellow cover. When I, I got the book mail and opened it up and I thought, oh, wow, that just stands out so much. Yeah, yellow is my daughter's favourite colour. So, Oh, um, perfect. Yeah, so it was perfect. It was definitely the one that the family voted on and went, yep. It's really exciting to have your debut novel out. But I was having a look at your web in preparation for our chat, Jackie, and I saw all the amazing things that you've done. So you have a PhD in creative writing. So obviously you're an author, a funeral director, an independent funeral director and an arts consultant. So can you walk us through how you got to be, I guess, where you are now, like doing all these different things and having your first book out? Yeah, I think, um, I think Pam, it's just from being old. <laughs> you know, like I'm 45 now and you, you I am of that slashy generation where you do lots of different things quite often all at once. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I started out in the public service in Canberra and then moved from there to Melbourne and was trying to make a couple documentaries actually and okay. writing. And then, but documentaries and anything to do with screen, you have to work with other people. And as an introvert, I was like, nah, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go back to just writing as my creative practice and that's always been me anyway I don't know who I was trying to kid and then I moved to well, Sydney. at least you worked that out yeah eventually I moved to Sydney and got a job again in the public service but at the Australia Council for the Arts as a research okay. analyst and that's how I got into the arts consulting because I was there for a few years and then we moved to Wollongong so I went freelance and was have been doing that for 15 years or so or thereabouts but at the same time writing doing the PhD having a baby who's now 10 and a half years old, not a baby okay. anymore. Yeah. Um, and I got into the funeral work just in the last five years after my sister in real life died. Right. Um, yeah, it just made me really want to be able to do what I felt like her funeral did, do, mm. do that for other people because it was a really good funeral. Oh, that's amazing. And, of course, that has informed your your writing too and your debut fiction, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a two-way it's a cycle really isn't it so writing the book allowed me to process what was happening with my sister in real life and then after my sister in real life died I put pause on the book for a little while and did the did the study and the training mm. to become an interfaith minister and a funeral celebrant mm. and director and then went back to the book and finished okay. the book. So, yeah. yeah, it's been very much in and out, but all of it feeding together. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So was it a Masters of Theology, Jackie, that you did for the, the training for that? Yeah, so to be a funeral director, you don't actually have to do any formal training, but I felt just more just like in life in general that it would be nice to do something for my spiritual practice and to be of spiritual service outside of religion and outside mm. of institutions because I'm not religious. I don't believe in God, but I was raised religious. And so right. I think a lot of people like me lapsed Catholics and lapsed Anglican, lapsed, we're lapsed. In general, oh, yeah. I can't, remember the, I can't remember the name of the author, but the book, the memoir called Lapsed, I'm very much related to that book. <laughs> lapsed in general, yeah. And so... 
there was always something missing for me. So I did the Masters of Theology through the interfa- uh, through the new seminary, which is an interfaith seminary. It's very okay. much specialises in helping people like me who live a secular life to figure out how to be of service. Yeah, I find that whole interfaith thing really interesting. Like you say, I think there is definitely a gap, isn't there? That a lot, so many people now have become disillusioned with traditional religion and formal church and things like that. But there has a lot of us feel that that. So yeah. I guess this whole interfaith ministry is looking to fill that space. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's lots of people trying to figure out how to fill that space. For me, it's really about thinking about spirituality not just as a as a not just as a well-being practice or I do it because it makes me feel good i think the thing about spirituality which which i had lost and um, maybe others had lost is that connection between ethical responsibility as well as a connection to mystery mm. those two things which religion when it's good it gets it right but so often religion gets caught up in politics Mm. and culture wars and just excludes people yeah yeah so absolutely the interfaith stuff is definitely a movement well it came out of the the african-american civil rights movement actually um, yeah the seminary kind of set up in response to that because the traditional christian churches in the states they were using biblical passages to justify slavery which is super not cool (laughs) yeah so so it came out of that and has very much a strong social justice thread to it yeah yeah so are you working regularly as an interfaith minister I don't really work as an interfaith minister because Australia we have a very different kind of attitude towards religion Mm. so a lot of my peers in my master's group they they work as sort of non-religious chaplains in hospitals and prisons okay. and as social workers and that kind of thing. For me, it's about funerals. It's about mm. being of service in the funeral space. So I do, I work for myself in that space as well as a couple of ethical providers, the Tender Funerals, which is a non-profit funeral provider and Picaluna Funerals, a social enterprise, and very much focused on providing meaningful, authentic affordable funerals for people of all income levels. Mm. 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 Oh, it's so interesting. But let's talk now, let's move into the, the book itself and into your writing. You won the KYD Kill Your Darlings Unpem- Unpublished Manuscript Award. That, well, was that I was, with I was shortlisted. Or? Yeah, I was, was shortlisted for that okay. um, with the eulogy, yep. Okay, yeah. yeah. So how long was the process of the writing of the eulogy, Jackie, for you? Was that, did that happen over a long period of time? Yeah, I was writing the eulogy on and off over 10 years. Ellie, my daughter, she was six months old when I started that PhD, and I did the PhD to force myself to write the eulogy. Right. Yeah, because yeah. it's not easy. It wasn't an easy book to write. No book is easy to write. I don't yeah. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, you know, lots difficult of tough subject stuff. matter and obviously yeah. very close to you with your sister. And your sister passed in, was it 2015? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, so obviously I took some time off after that yeah. to, to process yeah. that and, and what it meant, not you know, in my life, but also for the book because it was so much about me and her growing up yep. around. So the book is called or it's in a category I guess that I, I was interested when I picked it up and, and read about this because I hadn't heard of this label before but it was autofiction. 
So I'm guessing that's autobiographical fiction. Is that correct? Yeah. I don't know when the, where do they, they call it that on the back, don't they? Yeah, it's just a contraction of autobiographical fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, but yeah. it sounds cooler. <laughs> Autofiction. <laughs> Better for the hashtags. People have been writing it for a long time, but I think, and there's a long, a fairly strong tradition in feminist writing around autobiographical fiction and do it, doing it on purpose and claiming it and saying this is drawing on my life and my life mm. story is valid, is a valid subject of a novel. That's That sort of school of thought goes back 50, 60 years in, in the last few waves of feminism. Yeah, so autofiction, because so many people do draw on life, but I guess when 70% of your book is true. <laughs> That's when you say, okay, it's basically autobiographical, but also fiction. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I want to get onto that a little bit more, but prior to writing the eulogy, what was your world like around writing prior to that? Were you writing other novels? Were you writing fiction or short stories? Yeah. Uh, not really short stories. I, whenever I start a short story, it just goes, it just keeps going. So I think that the long form is my form. It, just, um, it ends up being a long story. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. And not and still not done. Yeah. So before the eulogy, I was writing, but I hadn't published, hadn't had anything published. I hadn't really s- tried to have anything published. I think there's two or three. Yeah, there's probably two or three full-length novels somewhere on the hard drive. Okay. <laughs> and one of them got me mentorship at Varuna 20 years ago or something with Charlotte right. Wood. Yeah, it was great. It was amazing. But I do remember rocking up to Varuna and having your one-on-one meeting with the mentor, Charlotte, and she was like, so what, what do you want to achieve this week? She was like, oh, I don't like this book anymore. I want to write it. <laughs> And I was in my 20s and I just really feel for Charlotte now. You do that with writing. You write things and you're like learning how to write, learning how to not fall down rabbit holes and or falling down them and clambering back up again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you then started to write the eulogy as part of your PhD. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. Because yeah. I did wanted you find to find that process overall. Yeah, like- oh, it was good because Pam, I wouldn't have finished it. Like mm. I, because I like I joke about it, but I, I do have these full length novels on my hard drive, which you, you get to a point and you're like, what am I supposed to do with it now? Do I still feel the passion for it to go through all the editing and reviewing all that sort of stuff? And and I didn't, mm. and so I wanted to write a book that and finish it that I did have the passion and the drive for all the way through, and it was almost the kind of classic scenario that I had to write this book before I could actually invest in any other narrative right. <laughs> emotionally. Yeah. 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 So the PhD forced me to do it and that's what I needed. I needed deadlines and structure and two supervisors emailing me and saying, where's the next 10,000 words? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when, so when did you actually finish that process, like the actual writing of the book before you then thought about? 2018, I think, was when I... 2018 was the year that I um, submitted it to Kill Your Darlings and I got an agent and that's also the year I was ordained as an interfaith minister. So that was, yeah, it was a big year. And my agent started to send it around to publishers, but we didn't get any traction. So for any writers listening, don't be too disheartened. We got, you you know what it's, you get a bit of interest, but then it doesn't go anywhere. That happened a couple of times. And by the end of the year, my agent and I just went, maybe it's not the right time. 
And so I just kept writing, of course. That's what you do yeah. when you're a writer. You keep writing. So now I'm actually still writing. I'm currently working on a book about the spirituality stuff okay. that we were talking about, yeah. spirituality yeah. without religion, um, probably more more just straight-up nonfiction. Yeah, so you just keep writing and think. I think my agent said something like one in three second books are actually first books. I've heard that too. Yeah. Mm. So I was like, mm. okay, just keep going. But then the SBS Emerging Writers Competition came up in 2020. Okay. Yeah, so I submitted an excerpt from the eulogy like into that competition and it was in the long list and it went into the Hardy Grant anthology. So I asked Hardy Grant, do you want to see the full manuscript? And they did. They did? Yeah, they did. And they picked it up. (laughs) They did, yeah. So it was unexpected and it was a long process. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So let's talk about the writing of it itself. You, you did do it as part of the PhD, but it was a story that was obviously very close to you. You, you mentioned the, the figure 70% fact, basically, rather than fiction. How did, when you were writing it, well, you're obviously writing it from your own experience. So how did you then decide which parts to fictionalise and which parts to basically keep as pretty much as they happened or as they in your mind, at least, has that happened? It's a good question. How did I figure that out? I think I started it as memoir originally. And so I had a lot of material, which was just straight what I remembered. Mm. And and so I had that that I could then rework. And the stuff that I fictionalised, it was to protect people. It was to protect right. family members and so on. Or the, the other stuff that was fiction was the contemporary storyline. And I just created that so that there was a plot that would drive the book along yeah, um, yeah. for the reader, really. That's what, and to amp up the drama in the present tense. Yeah. Um, I fictionalised things like, like jobs and locations and all that sort of thing. And friends all became smushed into one. Yeah. And obviously the stuff that is about my parents' childhoods, like I wasn't there for that. So I that was all based on the research that I did and the conversations that I had. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's other stuff which is almost exactly as I remember it because it was important to me that you probably might do the same thing, Pam, but there's certain things that you're like, okay, kill you, darling, has got to get rid of that. And then there's other things which are like, no, that's a deal breaker. That has to be in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. So actually I have done a little bit of an intro about what the book's about, but could you tell listeners, Jackie, from your perspective, what the book is about? Do you mean oh, just a little summary? Of- Basically the eulogy is about a woman named Kathy Bradley whose name is suspiciously similar to mine but is not actually me <laughs> and she's at a crisis point in her life really when her when she finds out that her sister Annie who's been s- dealing with the, a degenerative condition from cancer is now dying and so Kathy drives through the night to get back to the hospital in time to see her and then has to spend the week writing the eulogy and in that week she unpacks the family secrets and is trying to answer the question how did they get there and how did she mm. herself get to this crisis point in her own life yeah so, so how that's, different would you say Kathy is to you oh she's pretty oh she's different like she's not 
me. But that said, she does have the same kind of very nerdy interest in research because I am a researcher in the arts and social impact. So I do a lot of data and statistical research. So occasionally she just nerds out (laughs) and cites some psychological research about whatever it might be about grieving or kids with cancer. And and that's very me. (laughs) Yeah. But I thought those those little moments where she did that though were really interesting because they like they really add to the story itself and what it's about, which is about this whole idea of relationships and grieving and coming to terms with grief. And so all of those things that she is putting in there as part of her research or thought pattern or whatever, for me, they worked really well. Oh, that's good. And in in my own life, after my sister died because I am a researcher I did look up the research Mm. I did look up the research on grief and the impact it has on you physiologically Mm. and on your brain chemistry and all of that and that helped me when I was grieving it helped me to know that oh this is just normal this is physical it's not just me imagining or that sort of that cultural sort of negativity around oh you're just feeling it but you should be able to push through and get over it but to know that these are actual brain chemical changes in the body Mm. that did help me so that's partly also why I included that stuff because I thought this might help someone else know this is just normal yeah Mm. I really liked the structure of it so you've got the prologue which is a really great setup for the story actually was the it was there from when I fictionalized it when it was memoir it wasn't there because there was no contemporary plot line um, yeah. But yeah, as soon as I decided to fictionalize it, I did a lot of thinking about what her, what the protagonist's journey would be, because you know they've got to go on a bit of a journey, and some sort of change has to happen. I, yeah. I anyway, I like books where that happens. So I was like, yeah, Something's yeah. got to change for her. So what's her starting point? And I did agonize over it because she rocks up with a Tupperware container full of three hundred sleeping pills in her glove box, and she's clearly got some some suicidal ideation going on so I did think is that too extreme or is it just too 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 full-on is or is it too trite like are people Mm -hmm. doing this too much but it was emotionally really true for her and it just yeah it just made sense also given her family history of suicide in the family it just yeah, I, I considered it for a good long while, but I wrote it almost straight away, Pam, when I went okay. to the fictionalised version. And then I kept thinking, oh, is this too much? Is this too much? And, but no, always came back to going, no, this is the right journey for her. Yeah, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. of course, it sets up this whole idea that she is speaking to Annie throughout the story, isn't she? Like, it's really interesting because she uses the second person you, so she's obviously addressing a lot of what she says to Annie, but then there's a lot of periods in the book where she's actually speaking to the reader as well. I I really liked that sense that it was almost you were listening in on a conversation. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Mm. Because, yeah, like like a lot of writers, I just, I tried out all the voices. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Third person, close third person, try them all out. (laughs) Lots of find and replace going on. But, yeah, just made, I think it was actually, I just worked this out the other night, I think, it was after my sister in real life died. That's when I doubled mm. down on the second person voice because I think I was addressing it to her. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I didn't ever feel that it was overkill. Like it wasn't, oh, it was subtle enough that it just came back every now and then 
with the you and and it was like oh yes this is to Annie and like I did feel that it actually brought me into the story more I felt oh good yeah that's good because it's so much about sisters you're talking even if you haven't got a sister I feel like everybody knows what that closeness what that intimacy is like from a close friendship or a Mm. a sibling relationship so that's what I wanted good (laughs) yay yay the other thing I like really like, Jackie, was the, the sort of structurally where you've set it up with, so we meet Kathy where she is arriving, as you say, she's in some trouble herself, not in a great space emotionally. She's dealing with the death of her sister and is in the process of writing the eulogy for, this, for her sister. And so she's trying to work out how to do that. And so the story goes backwards and forwards in a number of different ways, really. So between her coming up with ideas for how to write and structure this eulogy and you actually use like a guideline type thing that she finds in about how to write a eulogy and that sort of becomes part of the structure of the book. Was that something that came to you after you'd finished the writing of it or did you come across that idea as in the middle of the process? How did that come about? That came about in the last couple of years of the writing and after I'd done all the funeral training and after I'd already started working in funerals, that's when I thought, oh, this might be a good way to structure this book because so I'd already written it with her writing the eulogy, but I hadn't thought about the guide to how to write a eulogy until after I'd done the funeral training and I'd delivered or written or listened to quite a few eulogies myself by then. And it's one of the things that people worry about when they're preparing for a funeral for for someone they love it's like how do i write how do i write a eulogy what do mm. i do and so i did go online looking for <laughs> guides to how to write a eulogy and i couldn't find any particularly outstanding ones i actually have a blog post now on my website saying here's some just pointers on how to write an actual eulogy so anyway so that kind right. of gave me the yeah. idea of, of the guide to how to write a eulogy and the guide that Kathy uses probably not one that i would recommend <laughs> actually, but it did provide a kind of slightly humorous as well, like yeah. way to structure it, um, which I think will appeal to all, the, all of my fellow deathies out there too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. The other parts of the story that I found really interesting were, so there's the sections where obviously she's in the present time going through this process of how to write the eulogy and, and things are happening as she meets different members of her family in preparation for the funeral So we've got all that present time storyline. There's different things that then happen or that are said that then trigger memories for her of her childhood and life growing up, you know, in in what was quite a dysfunctional family and her experiences with Annie and how all that worked. There's also sections then, as you mentioned earlier, where she goes back into imagining in a way the life of her, particularly of her mother in Singapore and what it was like for her her growing up. So how did all those different elements come to you as you were writing the story? And then was it a matter of patching them all together? Did you have different fragments that you pieced together? How did that process happen for you? So initially when I first started writing it, I basically had three big headings in Scrivener. It was like before, during, after. Right, yeah. (laughs) And um, because I wanted to tell the story of my sister, Alice, Mm. my, my sister's real name, my real sister's name's Alison. So I wanted to tell the story of her and me. But in order to tell the story of her and me, I just 
I kept coming back to my parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how did, and my question really was, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, so, so I did do that research and I did go and find my dad's army records down in the National Archives and talk to my mum whenever she would tell me anything, then I would try and jot it down and then ask her again a year later and see if it was the same story or right. <laughs> if she yeah, tweaked yeah. it. Because <laughs> there's lots of secrets in most families, but certainly in big families like mine. And then I just did some research around the time that she, that my mum would have been growing up in Singapore, which was under Japanese occupation during World War II. And I think the history of that is, it was important to me to include that because it's not that well known, I feel like, in in the West, basically, the kinds of atrocities and genocides or attempted genocides that were committed against Chinese Singaporeans that my mum and her parents lived through you try and work out why why your parents are the way they are and the clues are not the clues are right there on wikipedia sometimes it doesn't make it any easier to live with them as human beings but it does explain a lot and help you to understand the kind of intergenerational trauma Mm. that that you are trying to trying to transmute into something else yeah on the page or, or in your actual life yeah And so were you writing these different before, during and after? Did you write chronologically or were you writing a bit all over the place and then had to piece everything together at the end? Uh, I wrote chronologically and and then I got a bit shambolic with it. (laughs) I did so many drafts of this, Pam, like I can't even remember. And constant, like just I did a lot of restructuring and trying to figure out where this story fits and where that story fits and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I have lost count of how much of that happened. But initially, yes, I wrote chronologically and then I wrote chronologically for my dad and chronologically for my mum and then I smushed it all together and after the initial smushing it was just all the rules were out the window and I just printed everything out and kept moving it all around and there's various photos of me just lying on the floor surrounded by bits of paper Paper. (laughs) just kind of going what am I doing (laughs) so the structure of the guide to the eulogy really helped that actually. Yeah, that would have been a really great way to pull it together. And then, of course, you've got those natural sort of segues. She's in a position with her brother or whatever where, oh, that triggers a memory and then so on. So it was a really interesting movement in time, I thought, that happened throughout the book. And this other thing of how we remember things that she's is, you know, constantly coming up against how do we remember things? Are they real memories or are they things that I've imagined? That was a really interesting concept too, I thought, in the book. Yeah, because anyone who sits down to try and write actual memoir encounters that day one. So whose version of the story is this? And that was always really present to me because my sister, Alison, in real life, for quite a lot of her life, you know, didn't really have a voice in the later part of her life, not at all physically, but she people with kind of quite severe intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities can be quite voiceless in their own care and in their own lives. So it was really important me to keep asking myself whose story is, this is my version of the story. I don't want to put any words into my sister's mouth or that kind of thing. Very recently in the process, actually, just in the last couple of years, I found Alison's old journals and poetry and adapted that for the book because I needed her to be present, but I didn't ever want to speak for her. Yeah, it was really important for our relationship because you still have a relationship to someone even once they've gone. Did she know that you were writing the book, Jackie? 
No, I don't think so. In the last few years of her life, she wasn't very responsive. So she might have known, probably told her, but I certainly wouldn't have told her the kinds of things I was writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how about other family members? Did you, you mentioned that you had, you did at various times talk to your mum and try and find things out from her. Did you actively go and, and speak to different family members about their memories or thoughts or experiences? Was that part of your process as well? I'd say that's part of my that's I've been doing that forever because as right. the youngest child of that very large family, I'm, I've always been trying to find out what happened before mm, <laughs> or what happened yeah. while I was little and I didn't really know what was going on. So I had actually gathered quite a few of their memories already and then I didn't talk to any of them about it because it, it was important to me that the eulogy was my book and it was actually mm. my version of events, fictionalised. And then I went back to them after it was all basically a done deal, as in the Hardy Grant had acquired the book. And then I went to my siblings and said, this is happening. And right. because the book had been published as part of a PhD, you can go online and read it as a part of your dissertation. So I said okay. to them, you can go and have a look and let me know what you think and blah, blah. And none of them told me to change anything. And they're all still talking to me pretty much ah, kind of takes that's, that's, yeah, that's good that's good it's good and what about your parents are they still alive Jackie and if they my mum is still alive but I don't think she will read the book she's mm. quite elderly she's 86 and her English reading literacy is not great right so yeah I guess I was lucky in that way when I wrote it I wrote it thinking my mum won't read this mm. so I can pretty much write whatever I want yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Which, gives you a, which does give you the freedoms too, doesn't it? Because when you are writing heavily autobiographical material about close family members, there is that feeling all the time. I, I imagine that you're almost censoring yourself. Did you? How did you deal with that as you were going through the writing process? Yeah, I, it wasn't, I didn't consciously feel I wasn't consciously editing myself in that way. Okay. Maybe it was subconscious, but not consciously at all. It really, I really had to just put it out of my mind mm. till after it was done and then check in with my siblings. They did all know that I was writing this book, though, throughout the process. They, okay. So they, it was like, oh, Jackie, she's writing that. Oh, who knows what. But no, I've got some, I've got a big family and I have some beautiful relationships within that family and some less. And the people that I really care about, I think they're okay. Mm. And I was fairly, if there was any self-censorship, it, it would have been around those relationships. Right. Yeah. How many siblings do you have in real life, Jackie? I have five siblings. I, I know that's ridiculous that I pause, but I think there's a bit in the book where Kathy does too, because I do always get confused. I have one brother and five sisters, but Alison has passed away, so I have mm. four sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm still count alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, counting on my fingers here. <laughs> yeah. And did you feel that the book was part of your grieving process? Is, is that how you saw it or how did that come yeah. into play for you? I think it was. It was a... So when someone you you love is sick for a long time and is essentially dying for a very mm. long time, I think the term for that, what you're feeling is unresolved loss or unresolved yeah, grief. I because you're I've already grieving, used. aren't you, before they've 
they've passed. Yeah, yeah, but it's not quite complete. There were always a number of leave takings from my sister, Alison, and one of them was when I pretty much decided I would stay here in New South Wales, because my family's in Queensland, get married and have a baby. And that was the moment of leave taking with my sister. And it's and that's probably why I started the book then, actually, when my baby was about six months old. And that's when the PhD started. Because up until then, I'd always thought we might, I might move back and take care mm. of her or do something like that. But by that point, her care needs were at a level that I probably couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and I was creating a family. So that was the ultimate leave taking for me and her. Mm. And that's when I started writing the book. It was my way of saying, I'm sorry, goodbye. Yeah. 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 And do you find interesting you say that was just after you'd had your baby too. How did you find becoming a mother impacted your feelings around what was what was happening with your sister? And did it also give you more impetus to actually write the story? Was there any connection there, do you think? Yeah, I think there was. Um a fairly deep connection there. So I remember when I was pregnant and I don't know about you, Pam, but when I was pregnant, my own mortality came home to me <laughs> in a big way. What's going on there inside your brain and your body? But anyway, that happened. And like passing on the torch a little bit, like physically mm. you're actually doing that. You're creating yeah, a new definitely. life. To, yeah. So that for me, that resolved for me, what do I want to do with the last however many years I've got? I want to write and I want to tell our story. So that that was the trigger, actually. That was the trigger of, okay, once I had given birth and also giving birth, like I was not the mother I thought I would be. I was not the person I thought I was. <laughs> I love my daughter. Three weeks in, I was saying to my husband, I don't want to have a year off. This is, and I don't want to have another kid. Yeah, yeah. Neither of which I had thought. It's such a shock, isn't it? I don't think anything prepares you for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and luckily he didn't want another one either, so we were good on that score. Yeah, those few months, like I fairly predictably I had postnatal depression and knew it almost straight away because I'd had right. depression before. So I got onto it, got really good treatment, had a really good therapist and all, all that sort of thing. But, yeah, all your stuff with your mum comes up, I think, mm. when when you first have a baby. That's true, yeah, because, yeah. yeah, suddenly you're a mother and then it forces, well, it doesn't force you, but you start to think about your own relationship with your mother and then how that has worked and how that impacts your own relationship with your daughter. Yeah, all of that, all of that came up, of course. So I was like, I don't know how my mum managed all those kids. So I had increased sympathy for her as mm. well as seeing things a bit more clearly as mm. you know, things that when you're a kid you think are your fault, you, you realise, no, this what that had nothing to do with me. That was the strain that she was under. Yeah. So it was a bit weird. I grew, my sympathy for her grew and in some parts and lessened in other parts, probably just distance and maturity. So I could write yeah. her a bit more clear eyed. Yeah. 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 So interesting just to think how the whole writing process, when you are writing about real life events in that way, how it must give you that almost a mirror back to the life that you've lived. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, People ask me if it's cathartic. I wouldn't call it cathartic, possibly because I'm a writer and I didn't do it as therapy catharsis. I did it to yeah, tell a yeah. story, but it was pretty hard going. Um, 
However, at the same time, I also realised all that I had to be grateful for. And I have all of these wonderful older sisters who took care of me and they didn't have that. So it's one of those things. It's like, who are you comparing yourself to? Yeah. Figure out if you're lucky or not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Jackie, what would you say to other writers out there? Because I I know just in my own experience when I'm teaching writing, people say they draw heavily on on personal experience or they're worried about writing, family members or friends. What advice would you give to anyone who is out there thinking about or is in the process of writing something that's autobiographical and should they write it as memoir, should they write it as fiction? My advice would be just write, just write it, whatever it is, and then think about it afterward. Think about should it be memoir or should I fictionalise it? Make those decisions after you've written it because you've got to, if you're compelled to write something from your own life, then pop. if you're like me, the compulsion is because you need to tell your truth yeah. and you, know, you need to give yourself a voice where you haven't had one before. So you need to do that. Otherwise, you won't be satisfied and you'll keep rewriting and try and thinking it's some other problem, but it's not. It's just yeah, that you haven't yeah. written it down yet. So you just have to do that. You have to give yourself permission. That's not necessarily the version you publish, but it's the yeah. version you have to write. Because mm. I didn't fictionalise this until a few years into the process. Right. And that's when I started fictionalising it. And were there any moments or, or events within the book that where you were writing and you just thought either before you wrote it or when you were considering publishing it, where you thought, oh, no, I can't go there. I just can't go into that moment or into that experience. Not really because I think, I don't know, something about me and my sister and living with her potentially dying for lots and lots of years, I'm pretty happy to go to those places. Mm. I don't don't shy away from them, Pam, as now that you've read the book. There were some instances where readers said to me that's too much like my PhD supervisor and what I learned from that was I had to go away and work out if I thought what I thought and generally a reader identifies a problem but their solution is not always right so if she felt like it was too much it was it possibly it needed some space or a bit more pacing or whatever it was or it was too much but it wasn't Mm. necessarily that I had to cut it out yeah. which is what I worked out after a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of trial and error. Bit of trial and error. Yeah. yeah the, the stuff I did have second thoughts about were, was the stuff to do with my surviving siblings. And I did explain to them, this is not you. These are dramatised versions of you. And I've made some stuff up about, about these siblings that has nothing to do with you for purposes of drama, blah, 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 yeah. blah. Because I, I want to maintain a relationship with those people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I actually didn't change. I might have changed like one or two adjectives. I didn't really okay, change because I think Ben Law says if you're going to write about your family, you have to be a bit of a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, you've got to be very brave. I, I know, definitely know that. <laughs> Jackie, you said you are working on another book and it's a nonfiction book. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I, it's it is nonfiction and it is very much about how to lead a spiritual life without religion. So it's using all the research that I've done into the various world religions and plucking out what I think is good from them and, mm-hmm. and offering that to the reader along with my own, I guess it's narrative nonfiction where it follows my 
like attempts and failed attempts to, okay. <laughs> to find something that fills that gap. Yeah, it's been it's a great joy to write nonfiction after writing whatever you get people call the eulogy, autofiction, yeah, or fiction, yeah. um, because it's just I love research. <laughs> so there's yeah. that, and it's still hard, and but not in the same way. Right. Have you, I don't know if you've written any nonfiction, but it's just. Um, no, not really. I've written short, like just short articles and things, but nothing of, of any length. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, I don't know, solid ground under you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always research yeah. you can go to. to yeah. Yeah. Quite, I think that might work for me, actually. Fiction, fiction, nonfiction. Okay. I yeah. might do that. Yeah. And what I'm really interested in, in, in at the moment, what I'm obsessing about in my research is, is the nature of longing. And how okay. you know we we yearn for something, whatever that yeah. thing is. For me, it's like something to fill the gap of Catholicism. But inside that longing is the sort of seed of creativity. Really interesting. Yeah, it is. Which a couple there are a couple of really amazing poets and writers who've written about it. So I'm just like immersing myself in that. Oh, I'd be really moment. interested to find out who they are and to actually read some of that stuff because that sounds great. Yeah, the main one is John O'Donohue. He's um, a Celtic Jesuit mystic, basically, who's, who's since passed, but he writes beautifully about that topic. Oh, I might be researching topic. myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and have you got an idea of is that going to be published anytime soon, Jackie, or have you uh, got a deadline for it or anything? No, 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 just no deadlines, on it. just working on it. Yeah. yeah, hopefully next year. But, you know, yeah, I probably said that about the eulogy five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> just one last question because you've been great with it's very generous with your time but in writing the eulogy do you feel now because that was obviously a book that was you were so close to and had so much of you in it do you feel like that's now like yep great I've done that tick has it opened up do you think your creativity in a way yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, now I've done that, I can move on <laughs> and yeah. write other things. Having said that, I don't know about you, but I do find that I keep writing basically the same thing over and over and over again obviously in different stories and you know different ways but I think there are some things that are just important to you yeah that you just keep recurring to so the eulogy it's about love and hope and that's what my non-fiction book is really going to be about yeah and I imagine everything I write is going to come back to that but hopefully with very different settings and different characters Yeah. I think that's what readers are attracted to too, aren't they? We go back to certain writers because the things that they are writing about do recur in each of their books in different forms. So Yeah, I think, I think you're that's... right because, I mean, I'm thinking about the readers I've read, like their entire canon, Murakami, yeah. Ann Tyler and, you know, Leanne Moriarty and people yeah. like that. Like I've read, oh, who else, Kate Atkinson. I read all of them. I read them repeatedly and they're basically saying the same thing, but yeah, I don't yeah. mind because I love that's it. <laughs> exactly so you're on the right track yeah yeah. thank you so much Jackie it's been really fascinating speaking to you I loved the book and I just wish you all the best with it where can people find you online I'm on Instagram Dr Jackie Bailey Facebook Dr Jackie Bailey and I have a website jackiebailey.com.au so you can find me online in those places I'm not on Twitter Twitter stresses me out yeah yeah I dip (laughs) in and out of it but I'm not a regular yeah yeah (laughs) I can't handle it. But, yeah, yeah. I, I like Instagram because of the pretty pictures. So. I do too. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Jackie. Great to talk to you. And I'll probably see you tomorrow, actually, at the South yeah, Coast Yeah, I, I will. That'll be great. Yeah. It'll be good to see you, Pam. 
Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.